Welcome, listeners, to Iris and to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, January 4th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Let's take a look at the weather forecast for Northeast Iowa today. This comes to us from KCRG in Cedar Rapids. Early drizzle possible. Scattered snow showers today and tonight. Less than one inch is expected. We're on the backside of the system today, which will keep the sky cloudy and the temperatures colder. Watch for some slick spots and stretches early this morning due to freezing drizzle in the area. A winter weather advisory has been issued until 10 a.m. Plan on highs generally into the 30 to 35 degree range, which is still pretty good for early January. Scattered snow showers remain possible today and tonight, with accumulation less than one inch. A few slick roads and sidewalks are the primary impacts of this event going into tomorrow morning. Looking ahead, another smaller system may just graze the area on Saturday with a mix of rain and snow. From a temperature standpoint, there's still no sign of any Arctic air, and we'll be looking at 30s for highs throughout at least mid-month. Looking at the stories on the front page now, they include Merger Creates Mega Bureau, Educators Want 5% Boost in Public School Funding, and let's begin reading Baby's Herald New Year's Arrival. This story was written for us by Melody Parker. New Year's Babies Born at Allen Hospital, Mercy One. And it begins with a photograph of Colton James Hampton, who was the first baby born this year at a hospital in Waterloo or Cedar Falls. He was born at 4.46 a.m. Sunday at Unity Point Health Allen Hospital in Waterloo. And we see him in a crib, swaddled in a blanket, and there's a sign above his head that says, Hello, world. Dateline, Waterloo. Cedar Valley Hospitals rang in the New Year Sunday with the arrival of their first babies. The birth of the metro area's first baby in 2023 took place at Unity Point Health Allen Hospital in the early hours on New Year's Day. Alexis Toll and James Hampton of Cedar Falls welcomed their son, Holton James Hampton, into the world at 4.42 a.m. on Sunday. He weighs 7 pounds, 4.6 ounces, and is 20 inches long. Toll said it was crazy to find out that Colton was the first baby born here in the new year. Her 7-year-old daughter, Aaliyah, is super excited to have a baby brother. He's a happy, little contented baby, she said. They were discharged home early Monday. The first baby for 2023 at Mercy One Northeast Iowa was born at 7.26 p.m. Sunday in the birth center in Waterloo. Tatum was welcomed by her parents, Matt and Bailey King of Waterloo. They were surprised to be delivering Mercy One Northeast Iowa's first baby of the year. She's our sixth, said Mom Bailey who went into labor at 5.30 p.m. on January 1st. Tatum tips the scale at 6 pounds 11 ounces and measures 20 inches. While Tatum isn't strictly a family name, Bailey said all their children's names use letters from her maiden and husband's names. They now have three girls and three boys. Our next story comes under the heading of Government and Politics. Three Iowa departments serving millions are merging. Story written by Aaron Murphy. 
and it begins with a photograph of Kelly Garcia, who directs the former Human Services and Public Health Departments. Dateline Des Moines. Over 5,000 state workers. More than $2 billion in state funding, or more than a quarter of the state's budget. And millions of Iowans, including those on Medicaid, are impacted by the services offered. There is much at stake as elected officials continue to cement in law the merger of three state departments, human services, public health, and aging, into one mega-department, the new Iowa Department of Health and Human Services. That work will continue in the 2023 session of the Iowa Legislature, which begins on Monday. State lawmakers set the legislative process in motion during last year's session in which they established a framework for the merger and created benchmarks for the newly formed department to reach before its official first day on July 1st. More legislation will be required to continue the merger. Leaders among Republican state lawmakers who have agenda-setting majorities in both the Iowa House and Senate indicated they are deferring to Governor Kim Reynolds, who proposed the merger in 2020, and Kelly Garcia, who directs the former Human Services and Public Health Departments and will be director of the new Health and Human Services Department. Reynolds declined to be interviewed for this series. Garcia was not made available for an interview after multiple requests. A spokeswoman cited Garcia's busy schedule. Quote, I think the government has the right person here, said Pat Grassley, the Republican House Speaker from New Hartford. Quote, if you're going to make that transition, Director Garcia is someone that, of any director I've ever worked with in that department, she is the most accessible, seems like really has things put together well over there, unquote. Garcia's salary is capped by state law at $154,300, but she earns tens of thousands more. Garcia, who directs both the Human Services and Public Health Departments, was among state directors previously approved by Reynolds for a bonus. Garcia was paid $231,788 in fiscal 2022, state records show. The Human Services Department employs 5,022 state workers and the Public Health Department another 462, according to a transition report filed by Garcia in September. State lawmakers in the current state budget appropriated more than $2 billion collectively to the Human Services, Public Health, and Aging Departments. The budget for the State Veterans Affairs Department and Iowa Veterans Home were included in that state funding. Grassley and Jack Whitver, the Republican Senate Majority Leader from Grimes, said they look forward to any efficiencies that can be created by the merger. Quote, I'm always supportive of trying to create efficiencies or modernizing state government, Whitfer said. Some of these state agencies, the way these are set up, have been set up that way for decades. And the world changes, organizations change, and government should change too. So I'm totally comfortable with trying to create efficiencies or modernize different parts of the government, unquote. Democratic leaders said they will be watching the legislation to ensure Iowans who rely on the services provided by the agencies do not get lost in the shuffle. Among Democrats' primary concerns is the state's 
$6 billion Medicaid program, which served 893,804 Iowans over the past year, according to a recent state report. The Medicaid program is funded by a combination of state and federal dollars. Iowa contracts with two private health care companies, and a third will join in July that manage the program. Quote, we're going to be watching pretty closely because, at the end of the day, these organizations are designed to help Iowans who are most vulnerable and in critical need, said Jennifer Conferst, the leader of the minority party, Democrats in the House. Quote, so are we currently meeting those needs appropriately? I would say probably not. Will merging these departments make it easier for Iowans to access these services? Well, they better if the Republicans are going to get any support from us on this. Quote, so at the end of the day, our biggest concern is, can Iowans who need help get the help they need in a way that doesn't overburden them, and then in a way that allows them to get back to living a life that is full and whole? Unquote. Zach Walls, who leads the minority party Democrats in the Iowa Senate, shared Confirst's concern and also said he wants to be certain that the state does not lose focus from its public health department, especially on the heels of the COVID-19 pandemic. Quote, I think the number one concern is obviously making sure that we have a seamless transition for Iowans who depend on things like Medicaid and other state services. It's not easy, but it's critically important, Walls said. I think number two is, given how substantial the human service portion is going to be of the newly merged HHS, making sure that we don't lose sight of the public health mission that is continuing to be front and center, unquote. The next story comes to us from the Gazette, journalist Grace King. Educators want 5% boost in public school funding. Superintendents say increased aid is a matter of survival. Dateline Des Moines. Educators are asking for an increase 5% in funding for Iowa public schools, saying it's crucial to retain and recruit staff, reduce class size, manage increased operating costs, and make up for decades of underfunding. A 5% increase is survival, Mount Vernon Superintendent Greg Battenhorst said. The cost of operating a school district increases by about 3 to 4% each year, according to school administrators of Iowa. However, over the last 10 years, state aid has increased at a rate of less than 2.1% on average. Iowa lawmakers must set the growth rate for the state supplemental aid in the first 30 days of each legislative session, which begins this year on Monday. Art Satoff, Cedar Rapids Community Schools Interim Superintendent, said the education budget should be a sacred cow. He believes increasing state supplemental aid by 5% is realistic given the economy. Quote, my fear would be that it comes at the expense of succeeding years, he said. Inflation, which has increased by about 8% in Iowa this year, is stretching school district dollars even further, educators say, and paying teachers a living wage is challenging. Declining enrollment in many districts exacerbates this program, with the state's per-pupil formula of about $7,400 a student. The Cedar Rapids Community School District, for example, 
has seen a decline of about 1,400 students in the last five years, Sadoff said. The state provides a reliable and sustainable funding increase to Iowa schools, said Iowa Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitfer, Republican from Grimes. Quote, no aspect of the state budget has received more new funding since 2017 than K-12 education. Since 2017, K-12 funding has increased by over half a billion dollars, he said. Whitfer said workforce shortages are not specific to education or to Iowa. It is an issue impacting every sector of our economy, he said. Over the last couple of years, the legislature has passed several different loan repayment incentives, eased unnecessary licensing requirements for educators, and reduced taxes for all working families so they keep more of what they earn, unquote. House Speaker Pat Grassley, Republican from New Hartford, agrees. We're spending more money today on K-12, state supplemental aid, than we ever have in the state, he said. House Minority Leader Jennifer Conferst, a Democrat from Windsor Heights, said Democrats will continue to fight to increase funding for education, which is desperately needed. Republicans are defunding Iowa's public schools, said Iowa Senate Minority Leader Zach Walls, a Democrat from Coralville, the impact of which is bigger class sizes and making it harder for Iowa to attract and retain workers. Quote, we obviously need to be investing more in that next generation of teachers and having a stronger pipeline, raising teacher pay, and shrinking class sizes, he said. Quote, those are good for teachers, and they're good for students, unquote. Another priority for Iowa school districts is the state fully funding four-year-old preschool children who participate in early childhood programming, like preschool, have better health and better social, emotional, and cognitive outcomes, according to the Iowa City Community School District's legislative priorities. Research also shows that students with access to four-year-old preschool are less likely to repeat a grade, less likely to be identified as having special needs, more prepared academically for later grades, and more likely to graduate from high school. Quote, those not in quality preschool opportunities are going to start their K-12 school experience behind their peers, Mount Vernon's Battenhorst said. The key of preschool is learning how to work and play with others. It's not even about academic skills. Preschools help develop that foundation for learning. Currently, Iowa's statewide voluntary preschool program provides funding for free half-day preschool to four-year-olds. Half-day programs can be a barrier for working families who are unable to find child care before or afterward or transportation for their child. Confrist said Democrats will be pushing hard this year to fully fund four-year-old preschool, which is a great equalizer and could have a positive impact on the future of the state. Republican leaders Whitfer and Grassley said fully funding four-year-old preschool will be up to the Education Committee. Mental health needs. State educators also are asking for an increase in funding for mental health services to address the alarming need across the state, according to Iowa City Community School District's legislative priorities. One in five children in the United States has a mental, emotional, or behavioral disorder, 
according to the American Psychological Association. Suicide is the second leading cause of death for middle and high school students. Quote, our teachers didn't go into education to be therapists, but that's become one of their de facto roles because of the greater social-emotional needs in the classroom, Battenhorst said. Many school districts have agreements with mental health providers to provide counseling services to students, but the demand is great. Quote, we need to make sure we're incentivizing providers to come to Iowa and educating more providers to provide services for kids, Conforst said. The problem with children's mental health in the state is far from solved, and it's going to take some investment. It's going to take some resources, and frankly, it's going to take some attention to get this done, because the kids need more than they're getting, unquote. Grassley agrees there's a need for more providers. We can put all the money in the world toward this, but there just aren't the people to fill the jobs, he said. Incentives need to be created to attract workers to the profession and to rural Iowa, he said. It's equally important for school districts to be able to provide mental health services to their teachers and staff, Cedar Rapids's Sadoff said. Quote, there is no job in education that has gotten less complicated or less stressful, he said. Next, we have a story from the Associated Press journalist Annie Ma. U.S. News to Change Ranking System After Law Schools Boycott, Dateline, Washington. U.S. News and World Report will change how its rankings of law schools are calculated in response to a boycott by a number of top programs. The magazine's changes in methodology announced Monday in a letter to law school deans include an increased weight on outcomes for students such as bar exam passage and employment and a reduced weight on assessment surveys from academics, lawyers, and judges. The rankings will also give increased weight to school-funded fellowships, many of which steer students toward careers in public service. Quote, While we know it is challenging for diverse institutions to be ranked across a common data set, we all have the same goal, to provide the best information to prospective students so they can make one of the most important decisions of their careers. U.S. News is committed to this purpose. Eric Gertler, U.S. News Executive Chairman and CEO, said in a statement, In the fall, a majority of the top 14 law schools announced they would no longer submit data for the rankings. The magazine, which has published the rankings since the 1980s, will continue to rank schools that choose not to participate, relying on publicly available metrics to construct its list. Yale Law School, the first to withdraw from the rankings, said the ranking system was biased against programs meant to boost socioeconomic diversity and support the pursuit of public service careers. Dean Heather Gerken reiterated the school's commitment to staying out of the rankings process after the changes in methodology were announced. Quote, having a window into the operations and decision-making process at U.S. News in recent weeks has only cemented our decision to stop participating in the rankings, Gherkin said in a statement. Following Yale's decision to withdraw in November, other law schools followed, including Harvard, Stanford, the University of Michigan, 
and the University of California, Berkeley. U.S. News said in the letter to Deans that it had been in conversation with over 100 representatives of law schools, and a shared set of concerns emerged, which prompted the changes in rankings. The changes will be reflected in the 2023-24 rankings, which are expected to be published this spring. Those changes do not address all the concerns raised by law school leadership. The magazine said it was working on addressing additional issues raised by law school leaders around consideration of loan forgiveness and repayment assistance programs, need-based financial aid, and diversity and socioeconomic factors. Now let's turn the page to the Cedar Valley section. Changes eyed in Regent Funding lawmakers to focus on retaining graduates within the Iowa workforce. This story comes to us from the Gazette, journalist Vanessa Miller, Dateline Des Moines. Although a Republican-led effort last year to change the way Iowa funds its public universities didn't materialize, the concept isn't dead, as lawmakers are airing plans to revisit the idea in the upcoming session in their debate over how much to give the state's institutions. Quote, when it comes to education funding, quite frankly, I think it's time for us to take a look at how we fund the regent institutions, said House Speaker Pat Grassley, a Republican from New Hartford. We're not opposed to providing more funding into the area of the budget, but we feel we have to get a return from the standpoint of helping fill these high-demand fields in which there's needs all across the state, unquote. Included in last year's Republican-backed higher education funding proposal, which Grassley said is, quote, similar to what we will look at this year, was a mechanism to provide scholarships and incentives for students to stay and work in high-demand fields in Iowa after graduation. Quote, I think that's a perfect example of something that we can do that will do two things. Number one, drive more people into these degrees, but also keep them there to help fill these high-demand jobs, Grassley said. We want to try some new things, and this would be a new idea that we really haven't done a lot of investment in in the past, something that we could try to make sure we're not just doing things the way we've always done them, unquote. Iowa's Board of Regents every fall sends appropriation requests to the legislature broken down by general higher education funds, to be distributed among the three public universities at the region's discretion, and by special schools and special purpose units, like the University of Iowa-based State Hygienic Lab and Iowa State University-based Agriculture Experiment Station. Lawmakers in the House and Senate then propose funding amounts and come together for a compromised appropriations package they sent to the governor for approval. Lately, the legislature has denied the region's full appropriations ask, even cutting support for amounts it had already approved on occasion, like in summer 2020, when lawmakers took back $8 million and brought the total higher education appropriation to $63 million less than it was two decades earlier in fiscal 2001. When the regents last year asked for $22.1 million increase, including $15 million in general higher education funding, the three universities vowed to spend on things like 
mental health resources, graduation and retention rates, and filling high-demand jobs in Iowa. Lawmakers instead okayed a $5.5 million general education funding bump, amounting to a 1.1% increase for each campus. Republican lawmakers had proposed a bigger bump of $12 million, but wanted to tie it to a new Iowa workforce grant and incentive program administered by the state's College Student Aid Commission. The program would have supported students directly through grants and scholarships and compelled the universities to compete among themselves for state dollars by enrolling more high-demand majors. Quote, and they need students because the enrollments are decreasing, former Representative David Kerr, Republican from Morning Sun, said last year while debating the proposal as chair of the House Education Appropriations Subcommittee. Quote, I think this is a great plan that they'll jump on board with, unquote. Grassley recently said he still likes the idea. Quote, I think we want to change the conversation from just funding the Regents' institutions to turn out more degrees, whatever those degrees may be, he said, citing workforce demands in specific areas like engineering, computer sciences, and teaching, for example. Quote, so what our approach is going to be is we're willing to offer some ways to make you more competitive to attract people into these fields, he said. And part of what our proposal did last year that we're looking at for this following year is not only getting people in those high-demand fields, but also additional resources to keep them in Iowa after that as well, unquote. Regents request. The Board of Regents for the upcoming budget year requested $34.7 million more in education appropriations, an ask driven by accelerating inflation that, if granted, would bring the state's total regent education appropriations to $610.5 million. The UI has committed to use its share to address Iowa's nursing shortage and improve outcomes for students who are the first in their family to attend college. ISU, too, has vowed to use additional state dollars to help first-generation students address state workforce needs and foster agriculture innovation, among other things. The University of Northern Iowa has said its increase would go toward keeping tuition competitive with regional peers and churning out more teachers. Quote, we want to make sure that any money we're spending, and this isn't exclusive to the regions, it's everywhere we spend money, that money is being spent in the best way possible, said Senator Jack Whitfer, the Senate Majority Leader from Grimes, stressing the importance of keeping tuition affordable and ensuring students reap the reward of state appropriations. Quote, all those conversations are things that we'll have throughout the appropriations process, not trade school. Whitfer said, tying funding to students pursuing high-demand majors is an interesting concept. I think taxpayer dollars should be used to invest in the areas where we have jobs that need workers, and there's a lot of great fields in the state of Iowa where we need upward of 100,000 employees, he said. In investing taxpayer dollars from the state to our regions, I don't think it's a bad idea to focus on high-demand jobs, unquote. But Representative Jennifer Conferst, a Democrat from Windsor Heights, who leads Democrats in the Iowa House, 
said that type of thinking is too narrow for public universities that offer hundreds of different majors, minors, and certificates that the undergraduate, graduate, doctoral, and postdoctoral level. Quote, it's not trade school, Confirst said. The regent institutions are there to truly teach and educate future leaders in our state. And I think that what you'll find is the jobs that are in demand now might not be in demand in five years, or vice versa. So let's not cut the regents off at the knees and say you can only get your funding if you're teaching people how to do this job, unquote. Iowa's public universities are creating well-rounded, critical thinkers who enrich the quality of life in this state and do more than generate revenue, according to Confirst. Quote, they're able to understand that a lot of fields have true value in our community that don't just translate into paychecks, she said. Although Confirst didn't say how much exactly she's willing to appropriate the regents, she pointed to a widely circulated graph showing what has happened as legislative appropriations have decreased over the years, where state support accounted for 77% of the region's general education funding in 1981. Today, that's down to 31%. Meanwhile, tuition revenue has soared from being 21% of regent education funding to 64% today. Quote, at the end of the day, if the state is giving the regent institutions less, families are paying more, she said. And so if we want to make higher education affordable, if we want to keep people staying in Iowa, we need to make sure that we're doing what we need to support our regent institutions. State Minority Leader Senator Jack Walls, Democrat from Coralville, pointed directly at Republicans to blame for increases in tuition, which is up 4.25% for all resident undergraduates across the regent system this year. Quote, let's be 100% clear, he said. Iowa Republicans are defunding our higher education system. That is a huge driver of why student debt is getting bigger, unquote. He accused Republicans have enacted tax cuts instead of investing in young workers who are in college and trying to get their careers off to the right start. That's a policy choice that Republicans are making, and it's having huge impacts on the ability of young people to start their careers. Now, listeners, at this time, we want to just remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, January 4th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. In Waterloo, Susan, known as Sue, A. Schumann, 74, of Waterloo, died on Friday, December 30, 2022, at Unity Point Health Allen Hospital in Waterloo. She was born on June 25, 1948, in Omaha, Nebraska, to Edgar and Mary C. K. Cahill Kersenbrock. She graduated from Columbus High School in 1966. She received her LPN license from Indiana Vocational College in 1972, attended Hawkeye Community College, and later obtained her bachelor's degree in nursing, an RN, 
from UNI in 1986. She married Wayne Schumann on April 24, 1971, in Waterloo, and they later divorced. She was an emergency room nurse at Scheutz Hospital for 10 years and later at Allen Memorial Hospital's ER department, retiring after 10 years in 2006. She was a member of St. Edward Catholic Church and the Emergency Room Nurses Association. Sue, along with her sisters, Sharon and Sarah, volunteered with My Waterloo Days for over 20 years. She enjoyed reading and was a world traveler. She and Sarah also sponsored a men's softball team through the Waterloo Softball Association for over 20 years. They were inducted into the Waterloo Softball Hall of Fame in the summer of 2022 as team sponsors. Memorial services for Sue will be at 11 o'clock a.m. on Saturday, January 7th, 2023, at Lock on 4th, 1519 West 4th Street, Waterloo, with visitation for one hour before the service at the funeral home. Inurement will be at a later date in the Waterloo Cemetery. Memorials go to the Cedar Bend Humane Society. Condolences may be left at www.lockfuneralservices.com. Next in Waterloo, Brett Allen Klemp, 57, of Waterloo, Iowa, passed away on Wednesday evening, December 28, 2022, at Unity Point Health Allen Hospital in Waterloo, Iowa. A memorial visitation will be held on Friday, January 6, 2023, from 4 o'clock to 8 o'clock p.m. at Kaiser Corson Funeral Home in Denver, Iowa. A prayer service led by Pastor Craig Henderson, followed by a time of sharing, will be at 7 o'clock p.m. In Lubo Flowers, memorials may be directed to Brett's family for later designation, and online condolences may be left at www.kaisercorson.com. In Oldwine, Howard Meany, 88, of rural Oldwine, passed away Sunday, January 1, 2023, at Mercy One Hospital in Oldwine. He was born October 4, 1934, in Waterloo, the son of Martin and Agnes Shannon Meany. Howard attended and graduated from Immaculate Conception Catholic School in Fairbank with the class of 1952. After high school, Howard was employed at John Deere in Waterloo until he was drafted into the United States Army. He served in the Army from 1957 to 1959, and he then returned to work at John Deere, retiring in 1987. Howard was a lifelong farmer until he retired from farming in 2010. Howard married Janet Bance on November 11, 1961, at the Immaculate Conception Catholic Church in Fairbank. Howard was a member of the UAW 838 of Waterloo, the Fairbank Knights of Columbus, as well as the Immaculate Conception Catholic Church. There will be a visitation for Howard between 4 o'clock and 7 o'clock p.m. on Thursday, January 5th, and from 9 o'clock to 10.15 a.m. on Friday at Woods Funeral Home in Fairbank. A funeral mass will be at 10.30 a.m. Friday, January 6th, at Immaculate Conception Catholic Church in Fairbank. Military rites will be conducted by the Fairbank American Legion, Forts Duffy Post, 
1-800-242-5552. Interment will be at Immaculate Conception Cemetery in Fairbank. Memorials may be directed to the family for later designation. Lunch will be served at the parish center following graveside service. Online condolences may be left at www.woodsfuneralhome.net. Next in Waterloo, Paul Jerome Rothler, 82, of Waterloo, died Sunday, December 31st at the Cedar Valley Hospice Home. He was born January 20th, 1940, in Waterloo, son of Jerome and Marjorie Brooks Rothler. He married Judy Owens on September 2, 1962, in the Little Brown Church in Nashua. Paul graduated from Waterloo East High School and went to work for Mid-American Energy. He started out as a draftsman and retired from management after 35 years in 1995. Paul was very loyal to his work, but found time to balance with his personal life. He enjoyed building and rebuilding things from old cars, clocks, and furniture. Paul was also an avid golfer, achieving three hole-in-ones in his lifetime. He loved all his granddaughters and enjoyed taking them fishing in his backyard on the cedar. They will undoubtedly miss his famous homemade mac and cheese. Services for Paul will be at 10.30 a.m. Saturday, January 7th, at Haggerty Wychoff Grow-Up Funeral Service on West Ridgeway, with burial in Mount Olivet Cemetery. Public visitation will be from 5 until 7 p.m. Friday, January 6th, at the funeral home on West Ridgeway, and will continue for one hour before services on Saturday. The service will be live-streamed at Haggerty Wyckoff Grarup Facebook page. Memorials are directed to the Cedar Valley Hospice. Online condolences may be left at www.haggertyreichoffgrarup.com. Next is Rosemary Louise Dressel, who was born on February 19, 1945, in Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, the daughter of Charles and Ruby McNamara Hutchinson. Rosemary passed away peacefully, surrounded by her beloved family that adored her on December 31, 2022, at the age of 77. Rosie was a bright, shining light that shared her deep-rooted faith and was felt by those who were in her presence. Those who she met will always remember how she made them feel, accepted, special, and loved. Rosie's love for her grandbabies can only be compared to her love of purple that is tied together with a little bling and sparkle. We remember her country music, rings on every finger, leaving lipstick on every mug, eyeglasses that never fit just right, iPad games, and leaving sweet messages on Facebook that only made sense to those who knew her best. Rosemary was Larry's precious wife, who were married March 20th, 1961. She was our precious mother, our grandma, our sister, our aunt, our cousin, our friend. Our Rosie will be deeply missed. There is reassuring peace knowing she is dancing in the Lord's presence with her sons and loved ones. A visitation for Rosie will be held on Friday, January 6, 2023, from 4 o'clock p.m. to 7 o'clock p.m. at Parrot and Wood Chapel of Memories, 965 Home Plaza in Waterloo, Iowa. 
Services will be Saturday, January 7, 2023, at 11 o'clock a.m. at Hope City Church, 118 High Street in Waterloo, Iowa. Memorials may be directed to the family. Arrangements are with Parrot and Wood Chapel of Memories, 965 Home Plaza, Waterloo, Iowa. Their phone number is area code 319-232-3235. And condolences may be left at www.parrotandwood.com. Next, in Cedar Falls, Janelle Eileen Wilkes, 45, of Cedar Falls, died Saturday, December 31, 2022, at Unity Point Allen Hospital. She was born on December 15, 1977, in Moline, Illinois, the daughter of Robert and Claire Brandom Holtzinger. Janelle married Scott Wilkes on July 8, 2000, at Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Moline. Janelle graduated summa cum laude with a degree in political science from UNI. She also obtained her bachelor's degree in education. She was an entrepreneur who had a passion for running local businesses. Janelle was owner and operator of Main Street Suites, Nellie's Dogs, and the Cedar Falls Hertz Donut. She was a member of Fresh Wind Ministries and loved to volunteer in Cedar Valley for many organizations. Janelle had an infectious smile and laugh and could light up the room. She loved nothing more than being surrounded by her family and friends. She lived for being a loving, strong, and driven role model for her daughters, and Janelle absolutely adored her husband, Scott. Quote, now to him who is able to immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that will work within us. Ephesians 3.20 Family-directed celebrations of life will be announced at a future date, one in the Quad Cities and one near Cedar Falls. Memorials may be directed to the family to fund her daughter's education at Farmers State Bank in care of Wilkes Family Education Fund, 131 Tower Park Drive, Suite 100, Waterloo, Iowa, 50701, or Venmo at Gronsky13. Condolences may be left at www.lockfuneralservices.com. Lock at Tower Park is assisting the family. Here, the courier lists six death notices. Carlene Gail Armajo, formerly of Tama, died Friday, December 30, 2022, at Banner, Wyoming, Medical Center in Casper, Wyoming. Arrangements are with Cruz Phillips Funeral Home in Tama, Toledo. Robert, known as Bob Allen Kidd, 61, of Elk Run Heights, died Sunday, January 1, 2023, at Allen Memorial Hospital in Waterloo. Arrangements for Bob are with Haggerty Wychoff Grarup Funeral Service. Levon E. Lohman, 92, of Independence, Died Monday, January 2nd, 2023, at home. Arrangements are with the Rife Family Center, Funeral Home and Crematory, in Independence. Benny G. Shipper, 96, of Ackley, died Monday, January 2nd, 2023, at Grand Yuvanti in Ackley. Arrangements are with Council Woodley Funeral Home, Incorporated, in Iowa Falls. Michael, known as Mike, James Steele, 61, of Waterloo, 
died Tuesday, December 27, 2022, at his home. Arrangements are with Haggerty Reichoff Grarup Funeral Service and Wallace J. Taylor, 93, of Waterloo, died Sunday, January 1, 2023, at Pinnacle Specialty Care in Waterloo. Arrangements are with Locke Funeral Home on 4th Street. That's all of the obituaries in today's Courier. Let's turn now to the opinion section. Our first editorial comes from the New York Times and was written by Michelle Cottle. The 2022 High School Yearbook of American Politics. It wasn't exactly a feel-good year. With brutal inflation, the war in Ukraine, periodic pandemic surges, gun massacres, and the Supreme Court's ruling that women do not have a right to bodily autonomy. 2022 had its dark spots. Then again, we avoided a presidential impeachment, and no one stormed the Capitol trying to overthrow the government. So that was a step up. Plus, Sarah Palin lost her house race. Twice. As always, at every step there were political players and events that stood out from the general chaos in ways good, bad, and bizarre. It is once again time to recognize these special few. And here they are. Most egregious Nepo couple, Clarence and Jenny Thomas. With the Trump clan out of the White House, this category was competitive once more. But, Ultimately, the Thomases pulled the win, in part as a Lifetime Achievement Award. While the January 6th hearings cast a fresh spotlight on the conflicts between Ginny's wingnut activism and her husband's role as neutral arbiter of the law, she has been writing his robe tales for decades. Best New Imaginary Government Agency Nancy Pelosi's Gaspacho Police Tomato, tomato, Gestapo, gazpacho. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene may not be much of a legislator, but that gal is one heck of a creative linguist. Most expensive midlife crisis. Elon Musk. The standard cliche is for an aging man to buy an expensive sports car. But what if he already owns a company that makes expensive sports cars? Mr. Musk opted to drop $44 billion on a social media platform he has no clue how to run, in an effort to paint himself as a free speech crusader. All he has achieved thus far is to fuel rumors of Twitter's demise, damage Tesla, and convince much of the world that he is less mad genius than narcissistic ass. Well played. Biggest winner? Ron DeSantis. Florida's governor romped to re-election, capturing even the traditionally blue Miami region, with national Republicans drooling all over him. Mr. DeSantis is perfectly positioned to run for the big chair in 2024. The ever-looming question, what is Donald Trump going to do about it? Biggest loser, Donald Trump. His legal troubles are piling up. He backed a bunch of losers in the midterms. That upstart DeSantis is eating into his presidential polling numbers, and his fancy new NFT trading cards have been widely mocked. In a word, sad. Biggest electoral X-factor, the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision. By overturning Roe v. Wade, the conservative justices made abortion a red-hot campaign topic that mobilized pro-choice voters 
and damaged Republicans in the midterms. Here's hoping this is the start of an electoral trend. Most likely to wind up a tin-pot dictator, Carrie Lake. The Republican contender for governor of Arizona looked so promising as a next-generation MAGA demagogue. She had the charisma, the media savvy, the anti-democratic tendencies, the love of conspiracy theories, and a loose relationship with the truth. But she lost, and her claims of voter fraud are going nowhere fast. Time to see if Tucker Carlson needs a co-host. Most outrageous political stunt. Migrants on Martha's Vineyard. Was Ron DeSantis's flying a group of hapless migrants to this playground of the rich and famous cruel and sketchy? Absolutely. But it also drew public attention to the border crisis and outraged blue state America, both of which served his purposes. Most impressive survivor, Brian Kemp. Georgia's governor not only prevailed against Donald Trump's crusade to unseat him, but also emerged with his brand enhanced. Victory and vindication have rarely smelled sweeter. Most stylish exit, Nancy Pelosi. After 19 years hurting the Democratic cats, America's first female speaker and perennial badass is passing the leadership torch. The House is unlikely to produce a leader even half as effective anytime soon. Top con man, George Santos, if that's even his real name. Pick a campaign claim by the representative-elect from New York's 3rd Congressional District, and chances are it was false. Veteran of Citigroup and Goldman Sachs? Nope. Beleaguered landlord with 13 properties? Nope. College grad? Nope. Lost four employees in the Pulse nightclub shooting? Nope. Mysteries remain. There is an ongoing debate about his claiming to be Jewish, or was it Jew-ish? And it's still unclear how, with a long trail of unpaid debts, he was in a position to lend his campaign $700,000. Even in a Republican Party trainees to embrace alternative facts, this guy is testing the limits. Best reality show, the January 6th committee hearings. There may have been only two Republican lawmakers on the House panel, but there was a whole host of Republican consultants, lawyers, and former officials on the witness list, and these folks had many disturbing things to say about Donald Trump's scheming to overthrow the 2020 election. Like some dystopian schoolhouse rock video, the proceedings offered an extended civics lesson in how not to run a democracy. Most likely to appear in a future session of White Lotus, Donald Trump Jr., and his bride-to-be, Kimberlyn Guilfoyle. Of course, the real genius would be to set the whole season at Mar-a-Lago, co-starring Jivanka, Melania, and the rest. Best electoral joke, Dr. Oz. One word, crudite. Worst electoral joke, Herschel Walker, a guy who is accused by multiple women of abusive or threatening behavior, much of which he denies, revealed to have apparently semi-secret kids, alleged to have paid for women to have abortions, which he also denies, despite his anti-abortion politics, and seems to lie as casually as most folks breathe, should never have been a serious contender for the Senate. Full stop. Least surprising electoral outcome, Florida going red. Most surprising electoral outcome, 
New York going red. Biggest political gambler, Kirsten Cinema. It's one thing to be a perennial burr in your party's backside. It's quite another to quit the party and try to go it alone as an independent. Even in a politically quirky place like Arizona, the electoral system is not kind to third-party players. Most underestimated, Joe Biden, again. This year's policy wins included the CHIPS Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, the first major gun safety legislation in decades, an overhaul of the Electoral Count Act, and a law to protect same-sex and interracial marriage. As promised, he put the first black woman on the Supreme Court, and, as the midterms heated up, he kept his head down as the Republicans' red wave shrank to more of a pink dribble. You have to give the boring, moderate, pragmatic old guy his due. Best political euphemism. A tie. The Republican National Committee poo-pooing the January 6th insurgency as, quote, legitimate political discourse. Looked tough to beat. But then came election season and candidate quality roared into contention as the Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell's martini-dry nod to his party's weak Senate field. Most likely to have a miserable 2023, Hunter Biden. The new Republican House majority has one aim for the next Congress. Paralyze the Biden administration with investigations. The president's son, Hunter, makes for a juicy target. Expect Hunter and his infamous laptop to be the pet topic of Ms. Taylor Greene et al. for the foreseeable future. Runner-up, Kevin McCarthy. With Republicans' super-skinny House majority, the next speaker will need to spend a painful amount of time sucking up to the conference's lunatic fringe. Mr. McCarthy desperately wants the gig, but his best hope for a bearable 2023 might be to lose the speaker's race. Would that be humiliating? Sure. But it would almost certainly be less scarring than trying to wrangle all the wing nuts. Stupidest foe outrage. Tucker Carlson. His freak out over the rise of less sexy M&M mascots. Yep, you read that right. Best karmic smackdown. Alex Jones. He was ordered to pay nearly $1.5 billion to the Sandy Hook families and an FBI agent, whom he has spent years tormenting with crackpot claims that the 2012 mass shooting was a hoax. Cringiest Hitler fanboy. Yay. The rap star formerly known as Kanye West has been flirting with anti-Semitism for a while, but he really upped his game in early December when, in a sit-down with Alec Jones, he shared his affection for Hitler and the Nazis, while wearing a bondage hood, no less. Most shameless Christmas gift, the aforementioned NFT trading cards that Donald Trump rolled out this holiday season for the low, low price of $99. Happy New Year to all our winners, and to all the rest of us who endured the entire political circus. Now turning to the sports page, NFL players' communities rally for Bill's safety Demar Hamlin. With tears beginning to well, Tennessee Titans linebacker Rashad Weaver shook his head and lowered it to his knees, his body swaying as he tried to express 
what it was like watching friend and former college teammate Damar Hamlin having to be resuscitated back to life on the football field. Quote, I don't know, man, Weaver said Tuesday after sobbing uncontrollably at his locker. Quote, I missed exactly what happened, but like five seconds later, seeing the first replay of it, just kind of like everybody else sitting there and holding your breath and figure out what happened, unquote. And now, listeners, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, January 4th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org. And we want to thank you for listening to your IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.